Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. I'm David Lebowitz, global market strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. Today, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the risks and some of the opportunities that we see across private markets broadly. And when I say private markets, what I really mean there are private equity and private credit. I want to start by talking a little bit about why there's been so much interest in these asset classes over the course of the current cycle. Then I want to talk about some of the risks that we see bubbling up across both private equity and private credit. And then I want to conclude by talking about some of the opportunities and some of the things that we at J.P. Morgan are keeping in the backs of our minds as we evaluate managers and strategies within these two parts of the broader capital markets universe. Let's get things going here. Let's start by talking a little bit about why investors have shown so much interest in both private credit and private equity over the past couple of years. You know, in general, we've seen investors gravitate towards private markets in an effort to enhance both income and return. I think that the first thing to recognize is that as we look ahead and we show this in our long-term capital market assumptions – Public equity returns are going to be a bit challenged going forward. We're not expecting fixed income to do anything terribly spectacular over the next 10 to 15 years. So as people try to enhance return and generate a healthier stream of income, they've been forced to turn to the private markets. Now, there's been a bit of a tailwind helping this turn take place in the sense that on the private equity side in particular, the number of publicly traded companies has been declining since the late 1990s and the early 2000s. So investors have almost been forced to embrace this private market opportunity set. And furthermore, as we touched on in the LTCMAs last year and as we're planning on touching on in the LTCMAs this year, when investors are looking for growth, they're really being forced into the private markets as well. Public markets have become much more cash return mechanisms, whereas private markets present investors with the opportunity to grow the capital that they invest. And, you know, frankly, the data speaks for itself. Over the past five years, private equity and private debt fundraising have grown at a compound annual growth rate of 5.9%. Private equity fundraising has grown at a 5.5% CAGR, and private credit has grown at nearly a 7.5% CAGR. The interest in these asset classes really plays out in the data. We're seeing it in other measures as well. If you look at the amount of time it takes to close a fund, private equity funds in the earlier stages of the cycle, it took north of 20 months to close a fund. Today, it takes about 14 months, almost half the time. In addition, we're seeing an increase in the number of first-time funds being raised, and that's risen from 5% of all funds being first-time funds in 2013 to around 17% in the first quarter of this year. Now, This dynamic, this interest in private asset classes has led risks to begin to build. And one of the biggest risks that people tend to catch on to is the steady increase in dry powder, particularly within private equity. And again, dry powder is just capital that has been called but has not yet been deployed. Now, when we look at dry powder, we pick up on a couple of things. First, this tends to be concentrated in mega buyout funds and some of the more recent vintages, and that informs our preference for focusing on smaller deals and opportunities outside of the U.S. But, you know, another thing that we're seeing with respect to dry powder 
powder is that as public equity markets continue to rise and as investors look at pure beta and say, wow, you know, the returns from the S&P 500 are actually pretty good. Why am I paying my private equity manager two and 20? We're seeing these returns outside of private markets lead limited partners to come to the table and actually pressure GPs to put money to work. Now, this has led to a steady increase in purchase price multiples over the course of the cycle. At the end of 2018, EV to EBITDA, so enterprise value to EBITDA multiples for LBO transactions were at 10.6 times, up from 7.7 times in 2009. And furthermore, when you look at this increase in purchase price multiples, when you look at this increase in what people are paying for these private companies, the majority of the increase in these multiples has been driven by leverage. So when you decompose these multiples, what you see is that the equity share has remained relatively constant, and it's the leverage share which has been steadily growing. And part of the problem, and this is the big risk that we see across private credit and private equity more broadly, you know, the really big problem here is that private equity firms are tending to source this financing from the shadow banking system because banks have essentially stepped back from the leverage loan market. And as a result, we've seen private credit funds and direct lending funds step in and fill this void. So this synergy has been created between private equity and private credit, and this has coincided with broader growth around private credit in particular as an asset class. So we've talked a little bit about why there's so much interest in this space. We've talked a little bit about what's been going on in private equity in particular and some of the risks that are unique to that part of the private markets and how that's shifted over the past couple of years. I want to change gears and talk a little bit about private credit, where changes in regulation have really led in a shift in structure of the broader credit markets away from banks and towards non-bank companies and funds. If you were to go back to the mid-1990s, and we actually show this on a chart in our new publication, The Guide to Alternatives, if you were to go back to the mid-1990s, what you would see is the majority of leverage loan issuance was done by banks. Right, then we went through the financial crisis, regulatory standards changed, and banks basically got out of the leverage loan market. Today, or in 2018, 90% of leverage loan issuance came from non-bank companies and funds, and only 10% came from traditional banks. So the structure of this market has changed, and as the structure of this market has changed, the risks have begun to build as well. We did note that in 2018, 80% of leverage loan issuance was considered covenant light. That means it is a borrower's market, not a lender's market. And the Bank of England actually estimates that of the $800 billion of leverage loans that were issued last year, about 60% of that was used to finance M&A and LBO transactions. You know, we're seeing private credit firms come in, finance these private equity deals, relax their lending standards, issue CovLight paper, engage in EBITDA adjustments where they're adjusting the earnings of the firm for one-off idiosyncratic issues and in often cases allowing these companies to take on more leverage than might otherwise be prudent. So this all begs the question of how can we build expectations around the way private credit is going to behave during the next downturn? Because frankly, there's not a lot of data to inform this view. And the marketing narrative out there tends to be, well, you know, this is senior secured debt and it sits at the top of the capital structure and it doesn't trade in the way that public debt does. So at the end of the day, you're going to be okay. 
Well, we think that risks are building, and we talked about some of the risks coming from Covlight issuance, EBITDA adjustments. We've also seen an increase in Unitranche issuance, so that undermines the seniority aspect to leverage loans and direct lending. I would also add that private credit has become a very broad and nebulous term. Leverage loans are going to behave very differently than direct lending, which is going to behave very differently than business development companies or BDCs. And then finally, we don't really know what recovery rates are going to look like. I think, again, people assume, well, I'm sitting high in the capital structure, senior secured debt. Well, what does recourse on that company's assets look like? What does the recovery rate end up looking like? And we've actually done some modeling around this and did a simple stress test, which suggests that in a period of economic contraction, Year-over-year returns for private credit could be as good as flat, but the risks there are tilted to the downside, particularly given the serial correlation, which is inherent in marking any type of private security to market. So we've talked about the interest in this asset class, the amount of money which has come into the asset class, how that's led risks to build across the asset class, and that leads me to the conclusion, which is, as a client, what are you supposed to do? Well, I mentioned in private equity, We're focused on smaller deals, and we're focused on opportunities outside of the U.S. We're also seeing an increasing number of deals involving software companies, and I've kind of come to think of that as CapEx light, right? If you're a company and you don't want to build a new manufacturing plant, you don't want to invest in a whole lot of equipment, but you want to give your workers better tools, one of the easiest ways to do that in the current environment is to procure more software, and we think that that's a trend which could very well continue. On the private equity side as well, in terms of exit activity, A lot of this comes back to how am I going to get my money out? And IPOs are front of mind for investors, particularly given some of the activity in IPO markets over the past couple of weeks. I would point out, though, that in 2018, 81% of all U.S. IPOs had negative earnings, which is a level not seen since the tech bubble. So when you're thinking about how you're going to get your money back, I think it's very important to differentiate between a corporate acquisition, an IPO, or some sort of secondary buy. And we're seeing investors do more and more in the secondary market. You know, secondary market prices are around 100% of net asset value. So while there's an attractive exit opportunity today, if markets begin to tighten up during a period of stress, that exit opportunity may in fact not be there tomorrow. And then finally, on private credit, I want to leave you with two things to keep in mind. One, loan to exit. Don't loan to own. If you're going into private credit markets, you should not be in the business of providing companies with perpetual capital. You should have a game plan or your manager should have a game plan of how they're going to get that money back. And then furthermore, everybody claims that they're cov-tight and not cov-light, but the devil is really in the details. And as we show on page five of our guide to alternatives, manager selection is of the utmost importance when playing in asset classes outside the traditional stock and bond spectrum. We still see things to do in private markets across private credit, private equity, but we're seeing some risks begin to build. And we think the most important thing for investors at this juncture is not to get wrapped up in the momentum of fundraising and good exit activity and IPOs finally coming back in 2019, but rather to focus on how does the manager approach running the portfolio? Do they have a sustainable and repeatable process? Are they taking an owner-operator mindset? Or are they engaging in financial engineering? These are lots of conversations that we think investors need to be having with their private market managers, and these are things that we'll probably explore in more detail during future episodes of Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks again for joining us today. I hope you found this interesting. Send us any and all feedback that you have, and I look forward to talking to you all again sometime soon. 
Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on April 23, 2019. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This content is a general communication being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, Users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chasing Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our company's privacy policy. For further information regarding our regional privacy policies, please refer to the MEA Privacy Policy. For locational Asia-Pacific privacy policies, please click on the respective links. Hong Kong Privacy Policy, Australia Privacy Policy, Taiwan Privacy Policy, Japan Privacy Policy, and Singapore Privacy Policy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, S.A.R.L., in Hong Kong by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited, in Singapore by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, Co-Reg Number 197601586K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. Co-Reg number 201-120-355-E. In Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, 
in Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investments Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm Number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients, only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514383280, AFSL 376919, in Brazil by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2019 J.P. Morgan Chasing Company, all rights reserved.